Well, good morning, all. Trust you've all had a blessed week and look forward to our opportunities this morning. We get to another really great king, and you're going to get to see that. Uh, Hezekiah, we kind of have to divide into several weeks, probably three weeks worth. And um, several family members responded to that. Well, you can't even consider him a lesser king then. You should just exclude him from your study and go on. I'm like, no, but he's one of the good ones. We can't overlook the good ones. So we will be in 2 Kings 18 as well as 2 Chronicles 29. We'll kind of go back and forth uh, as the case demands it this morning. But let's pray and begin. Father, we're thankful for the blessedness of your word. We're thankful that what we see in Scripture is not only a direct and clear mirror of life as we know it under the sun, but is also a testimony of your justice, your goodness, your wisdom worked out in life, and your instruction that would guide us in a way of life. We're thankful that in Jesus Christ we have eternal life. We're thankful that in him and by the power of your spirit, we have wisdom to walk in the present age. And we do pray that you would continue to conform our thinking and our feeling to this word, that regardless of where we find ourselves, from the epistles of the New to the histories of the Old Testament, we would uh, see your good favor upon us and your direction guiding us. We do pray all these things in the name of your Son. We're thankful for the intercession that he's even making for us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. This week I had reason in a totally different avenue than just preparing for Sunday school to look up our society's attitudes towards virtue. So first I I googled chief virtue of the Western world. That returned a lot of great answers, and a number of sites included things like the four cardinal virtues of prudence, temperance, fortitude, and justice, and then talked about the origins of those, and you know, there's Greek philosophy over here, but Christianity helped develop them this way, and I thought, well, that's a pretty good answer. Chief virtues of the Western world are prudence, temperance, fortitude, justice. Uh, The same site and a lot of additional sites added very quickly, uh, uh, in addition to these, said, well, we can't stop there because these are virtues that would have been recognized in the ancient world to some extent. But the Christians added faith, hope, and love, which guide all of our thinking and, and all of our processes and all of the decisions that we make in terms of laws that we pass and attitudes and dispositions towards others. Um, But they listed these as these are the principles that built the Western world, the the modern Western world. These are the foundations for uh, free societies and democratic societies. And I said, well, come on, you guys are cheating a little bit. You're taking these from uh, scripture, from Christian influence. So what are the virtues that secularists uh, hold up as their chief virtues. This is what we believe is really right as secularists. So I, I had to c- keep dialing around and playing with Google for a little while. So I finally ch- Googled what are the chief virtues of secularism? <laughs> Crickets. No, there weren't any. There weren't any. I like Googling what are the chief virtues of secularism. Uh, you have people going, well, you know, um, uh, uh, how about them Braves? 
<laughs> and they just talk about other things, and they, they look around like virtues? What, what are you talking about? Uh, some of them will dial back to, well, um, Christianity did that. I'm like, whoa, 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 don't cheat, don't steal. What are your chief virtues? And I ran through the first several hundred sites that it returned, and none of them actually were dealing with virtues of secularism, because apparently there aren't any. Some sites struggled to say, well, secularism allows people to have whatever religious opinions and inclinations they want. And I said, "Uh, sorry, you borrowed that from Christianity. It is the Christian influences of American civilization that uh, our nation was founded upon in the beginning that is tolerant because there were no ancient societies that were tolerant of other religions, even down to the point of Rome would conquer a new territory and it would say, all right, your existing gods kind of get grandfathered in, we'll allow you to have those, but no one is allowed to invent a new deity or a new religion, we'll, we'll persecute you, prosecute you for that. It's one of the reasons, by the way, the early church said we're actually historic, biblical Judaism bearing fruit in the Messiah. And the Jews wanted to go, no, 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 they're new. They're totally new. So they're not, they're illegal. Okay? So that went on in the ancient world. So secularism is essentially borrowing. Even the one virtue that it can come up with is tolerance. And even that is a very badly degraded form of kindness and freedom of conscience that pre-existed in Christianity. Christianity's freedom of conscience is an actual virtue. Secularism's tolerance is not one. So although we have search engines that can scan billions of web pages, none could find an actual virtue of secularism that I'm aware of. And again, this is only within the first few hundred. I did not search billions of web pages personally. Okay, That would have taken uh, a couple of lifetimes. But our world exaggerates tolerance and its virtues. It has no virtues, actually. It demonstrates it's actually intolerant when it is tolerant. We recognize you can tolerate cancer or health, but you can't tolerate both. You can tolerate termites or wood integrity, but not both. If you tolerate the termites, you're not tolerating a house for very long. You can tolerate evil or good, but not both. And today's text leads us into consideration of what our personal responsibility might be in a treacherously tolerant age. 2 Kings chapter 18, just the first eight verses. In the third year of King Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Avi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. We're like, finally, we've been hoping for this guy. But look at this. It's not just Hezekiah did some good things. Look at this description of him. He did what was right according to all that David, his father, had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. He broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. And it was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, 
so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. Well, that's quite a commentary. Wouldn't that include David? Apparently, yes. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him wherever he went out, he prospered. Wow, what a testimony. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. And this is the testimony of the Lord. I did not pick the week in which we'd be covering the pushing back of the Philistines. A number of years ago, we had a mole that was doing some damage in our yard. By the way, you all know, we, I think I've used these illustrations before. We have outdoor cats. They're very effective when you own a number of acres. We have 10 acres of fields and woods that are right up against Paris Mountain State Park, so that's 1,500 acres. There, there would be mice in that amount of woodlands. So we get field mice and wood mice all over the place, and a number of years ago, uh, they got into a bag of rye and bred like, like mice. So after we killed 48 mice in two weeks, we're like, we have to do something about this, so we got cats. So the cats are outdoor cats. I'm allergic to them, but they're very friendly with people. So we had a mole that started uh, moving into the yard, and you know, like, well, it's underground. They can't do any good. But one day I was sitting there in the pavilion, and the mole came out and started running across the yard. And I yelled, get him, Smokey. And he looked at me. He's like, get him yourself. <laughs> Inacti- inactivity actually makes us an ally of something. We would like to pretend that neutrality really is neutrality, but inactivity is really an ally of something, even if it's just an ally of ourself, an ally of inertia. Countries that were inactive during World War II were basically saying, us for us, we'll reap all the prosperity of having ties with everybody else, but we don't care what happens in the rest of the world. And the reality is that allows evil then to continue. And if you have a cat that allows the moles to continue and they're just inert, I'm not going to do anything about it, then they've become an ally of the mole. And I'm like, what? You know, of course, then you have the great description of your cat. You mangy flea bag, you good for nothing, lazy. You know, by the way, he hunts plenty of things. He just tends to do it at night when we can't see him. We just see the evidence of it in the morning. So he really does some good. But our testimony of our passage today is that because those who refuse to eradicate evil are its allies, we have to trust the Lord in pursuing, pursuing personal holiness. Now, we don't have the opportunity to eradicate evil very often. It has to be within our sphere of authority, our sphere of influence. God has not called us to go out there and within our own strength of arms or something like that, wage war in society. It has to be within the confines of other biblical principles, including honoring those who are in authority and many other things. But frequently we find ourselves not even willing to eradicate, I mean really go after evil that's in our own hearts. And if we're not willing to pursue something to destroy it when it is contrary to God, then we actually become its ally. 
We're not really neutral in that battle. A live and let at live attitude towards wickedness is actually an affirmation of evil in our midst. And we've seen that with several of the kings that we've already covered as well. But as we get into the life of Hezekiah, we begin to see things like we have to crush evil within our sphere of influence. That begins in verses 3 and 4 with removing the very objects of evil themselves. When we see evil, we actually pursue it to remove it. If there is something going on in life, it has to be broken down or destroyed. And this is where a lot of the previous kings erred. We've talked about people like Jotham. He's righteous. The passage again says, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Nevertheless, the people continued to worship on every high place and under every green tree. By not pursuing the wickedness under his authority, and obviously as a king, he had absolute authority to prosecute justice in the land. When Jotham would not do that, he actually becomes an ally to evil in some ways. And when Hezekiah does pursue it, now we have this testimony that wherever he went, God prospered him. Why? Because his heart is absolutely loyal to God. Under his sphere of influence, he is destroying evil wherever he sees it. So he removes the objects of evil. What does that look like? It means breaking down high places. Um, When archaeologists excavated around Megiddo and the town of Megiddo, they actually found a Canaanite altar that was way buried. It was not the first or second or third strata deep because it had been destroyed and burned, and then they just pile rubble on top of it and start over, build a city on top of it. But they dug down to and found a Canaanite altar, big, expansive altar. This is about 20 to 30 feet across. We couldn't get right down on top of it. I would have loved to have actually been able to you know, touch it and get closer vantage point vic- pictures when I was in Israel. But altars were built everywhere. Look at that. I mean, the passage tells us that. Every high place. You get a little promontory somewhere, the people of Israel are building an altar to pagan deities on it, and they're worshiping the host of heaven and all the gods of all the surrounding nations and pursuing every imaginable evil thing that would defile them. And, and it says Hezekiah pursued them all. He broke down the altars on every high place. The passage tells us he broke up the bronze serpent. I actually found a guy who makes snakes out of brass, and he carves their individual scales like this. So uh, the bronze serpent, you know, like that, that's a good thing. I mean, you think about what the bronze serpent represents for the people of Israel. They're griping against God, and they repeat this griping process over and over again to the point that God finally sends fiery serpents among them, which have to be poisonous. It says the people are being bitten by them, and they're dying, so it's probably an Egyptian cobra, just like this is. And the uh, people are dying. They come, Moses, Moses, save us. And he said, Moses can't save them. But he makes a bronze serpent and puts it on a pole and holds it up. And anyone who's willing to look to a God-ordained means of salvation there just from physical harm was saved. You're like, well, that's a wonderful thing then. I mean, keep that with you. And anytime your kids are griping, you know, hold up the bronze serpent and be like, remember, remember Israel. No complaining. Remember Israel. But they have corrupted that tradition over time. So then instead of this bronze serpent representing the salvation of Yahweh himself, 
his mercy and goodness to people, and at the same time, his justice and judgment. Now this bronze serpent has become corrupted to be the very object of salvation. It is the serpent that saves us. And, of course, that leads into all sorts of pagan worship. They are worshiping the serpent itself. So Hezekiah calls it Nehushtan, which just means it's made of brass. It's a thing of brass. In the vernacular, Nehushtan would be, seriously? It's a chunk of metal, nothing more. Okay? That's what he's mocking. So, so, so we got to tear it apart. And you're like, well, he's destroying tradition. If tradition has begun to get in the way of truth, it needs to go. If tradition has become corrupted somehow in our thoughts and hearts so that traditionalism has replaced what the tradition itself stood for, it needs to go. We started worshiping some intermediate object instead of God himself. And Hezekiah said, I'll have none of it. There will be an undivided, completely loyal worship of God and God only. I will brook no other obstacles. I will allow nothing else in God's presence. So it's an analogy. While people were revering a place where they drew near to God rather than the God to whom they drew near to in that place. And an analogy in our, our modern era, or, or I would say an application probably, would be sometimes in our past we had a point or a place at which God really got a hold of our hearts. Maybe we recorded in a journal, maybe it was, a, as we call them, mountaintop experiences. You know, you went to a Christian camp, or uh, you, you pulled apart for a period of time and studied, and this was a really meaningful place. But then you, you start treating the place itself as if it is the locus of divine activity. And so when, when your heart starts deteriorating and you start walking away from the Lord, your attitude is not, I need to draw near to God himself through his exact ordained mechanism. Our thoughts go, oh, if I could just get back to such and so a camp, if I could just rent that property again and, and get a loan, that would bring me close to God again. And you go, really? What? Is a log cabin somewhere in the mountains the mechanism of drawing near to God? Where do you find that in Scripture? The fact that God used something like that in our past is great, was wonderful, but he used it because we chose to draw near to him in prayer and repentance. So remove any objects of evil, and that includes something that was once good and has become corrupted and degraded over time because of our treatment of it, like, again, corrupted traditions. Second, Hezekiah removes the impulse toward evil. Verses 5 through 7. The passage shows us he trusts in the Lord absolutely, leaving no room for alternative gods or alternative hopes. Note how many, uh, or note how the passage says there were no kings like him either before or after. He was like David in righteousness, but not like David in moral defect. David did not get to be the, the sweet psalm singer of Israel and so on and so forth because he earned his place before God, but because of his faith in God. Hezekiah appears to have been, in terms of just practical righteousness, more righteous than David. That's quite impressive. 
By doing this, Hezekiah is leaving uh, Judah with no excuses. He eradicated the obvious sins and had drawn near to God in his heart. No excuses for wrongdoing. Why? Because God prospers him in everything that he did. Which means if prosperity really had been linked to all of that false worship, then the one guy who arrives and destroys false worship more thoroughly than any king before him or after him, surely the gods that he's destroying would fight against him. And we find nothing but blessing. God pours into Hezekiah's lap evident blessing, refuting once and for all with absolute finality the uh, attitude or disposition that these other deities could be true. There's a removal of the input of evildoers, verses 7 and 8. He rebelled against Assyria. Now, anybody have a problem with that statement as good, given what we talked about last week with Hoshea? Do you remember what we said about Hoshea's rebellion against Assyria? Was that good or bad? That was bad. And now I'm saying Hezekiah's rebellion against Assyria is good. Oh, you're one of those people, you know. Can I take off our flip-flops and wave them in the air? (laughs) Flip-flops. You just do whatever is convenient for the message of the day. No. Why was Hoshea's rebellion against Assyria bad? It's been a whole week, I know. He had made a covenant with Assyria, pledging himself to be Assyria's vassal. The passage explicitly said he gave oaths to the king of Assyria. It was not the rebellion against Assyria per se that was the problem. It was that he was a a word, a truce breaker. He was in violation of his oaths. And God said, no, 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 that is not like my people. My people tell the truth. I am a God of truth. You, You speak the truth and speak it always. Well, Hezekiah is a totally different kingdom. Hoshea was up in the north. Hezekiah is in the south. And Hezekiah is a brand new king. So even as, though his father had said, oh, you're all, uh, his father, by the way, Ahaz, right? So Ahaz had paid Assyria to come help us and become something of a semi-vassal. But now Hezekiah is a brand new king. There is no oath between him and Assyria. And Assyria is kind of keeping their eye on him to see what's going to happen. And Hezekiah says, and what's going to happen is y'all can hit the highway. Well, is that going to produce a reaction from Assyria? Like perhaps in just the next couple of chapters and we get to study that here in the near future? Yes, absolutely. Assyria is not going to tolerate this. But Hezekiah did what was right in rebelling against Assyria because Assyrian influence upon the people of Judah had been pervasively evil. Judah had already begun copying Assyria's deities and infecting Judean life with its own cruelty and its own wickedness. In addition... Hezekiah destroyed the Philistines. These are sea peoples. Um, You go all the way back in archaeology and biblical scholars are in debate exactly who they were, where they came from. Uh, Seems like they could have been uh, Phoenician connected and or Greek seafaring people from way back before Greece was a nation, possibly from Crete, possibly from the other end of the Mediterranean altogether. But they were perennial enemies of Israel. And given any opportunity to do harm to Judah, they did. It was just a couple lessons ago. 
where we actually said the Philistines joined. Remember, the Philistines joined. The, the Edomites are attacking way down here in the south. Philistines are attacking from the west, as the Syrians and Israelites are attacking from the north. Everybody is preying on Israel during Ahaz's day. Hezekiah rises to power, puts his trust in the Lord, and immediately addresses these perennial enemies that have been preying on Judah in the intervening time period. So under Ahaz, these same Philistines had invaded the towns of Judah, killed people cruelly, and kidnapped captives to take back to the Gaza Strip. Uh, Sorry, that was a Freudian slip. God gave Hezekiah the power to destroy the Philistines for their wickedness and remove their influence on Judah altogether. In the first year, this, we have to flip over to Second Chronicles here after seeing the destruction that God brought on, uh, against the Philistines for their own wickedness. In Second Chronicles 29, so we're moving over from Second Kings to Second Chronicles. I'm trying to arrange this in chronological order, piece the story together. But in verses 3 through 9, in the first year of his reign, in the first month, he, Hezekiah, opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. Wait, how long did it take him to start doing good? I mean, he's a young man, and he doesn't have his advisors picked yet, and his cabinet's not in place, and he hasn't consolidated power, and he hasn't gotten rid of all the wicked, uh, you know, Praetorian Guard equivalent. I know that there's no Judean Praetorian Guard, but every nation has its own equivalent. The power brokers behind the throne, the deep state, he hasn't gotten rid of all of those yet. So it's a dangerous thing to do. So give me, you know, 10 or 12 or 15 years, and once I've got all this under control, then I'll start doing good for the Lord. And Hezekiah says, nope. God's brought me to the kingship now. Cleanse the temple. And like, don't you know how dangerous this is? You're getting rid of the gods that everybody's worshiping around you. Uh, yeah. And your point? Hezekiah wages war directly against the wicked immediately. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them, which is going to cost Money. So he's beginning pour, to pour money into something that really matters. He brought in the priests and the Levites and assembled them in the square on the east. Say, so what does this even look like? Temple Mount is about 30 acres today. This is Hezek- not Hezekiah, sorry, Herod's temple with the retaining walls and the structures. It was much smaller in Hezekiah's day. But we believe in all probability that the temple itself, the temple proper, did not sit anywhere near the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is on the south end, or even the Dome of the Rock, which is in the middle. It probably sat on the north end of what is the Temple Mount, uh, lined up or aligned with the eastern gate of the, of the temple. And so the, uh, with the temple oriented uh, east and west like this, the people, the courtyard would have been in front of it on the east side exactly as this passage seems to indicate. So he assembles all the Levites and priests in the square on the east and he said to them, Hear me, Levites! Now consecrate yourselves and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry out the filth from the holy place. What is he calling filth? Any other God, any other God, any other form of worship, any non-prescribed things, any uh, innovativeness that the people have engaged in that did not glorify the God of Israel 
as God's, Israel's God had prescribed. Other stuff had accumulated as well, debris, garbage. But carry out all the filth from the holy place. For our fathers have been unfaithful and have done what was evil in the sight of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him and have turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord and turned their backs. They've shut the doors of the vestibule and put out the lamps and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Therefore, you're like, come on, he's a young man. How can you draw these conclusions? He's theologically astute enough to know causes and effects. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord has come on Judah and Jerusalem. And he's made them an object of horror and astonishment, of hissing, as you have seen with your own eyes. For behold, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. Hezekiah immediately begins cleansing evil from his sphere of influence. Not only goes on the warpath in opposing evil directly, but also then cleaning it out from under his control. He removes evil by turning back to God in the first several verses here. Note all the singulars. He opened the doors. He brought in the priests. He assembled them. He said to them, Hezekiah did not merely crush evil in the sense of destroying it out there. He cleansed it from lives and from the land. He not only turned to God himself like Jotham had done, he brought the people to turn to God. Oh, you priests and Levites, all of you, cleanse your hearts, cleanse the place of worship, cleanse the land. So again, notice the phrase, carry the filth out from the holy place. So two possibilities exist here. Hezekiah might be insulting the idols by calling them garbage, just in case you, you missed what he thinks of false deities, their refuse. But depraved worship also often results in filth. Do we see that anywhere in our civilization today? That as political parties worship, and they are worshiping, they're worshiping pagan ideology, they're worshiping satanic vices, does that bring actual physical degradation to cities and places? Does trash accumulate does stench accumulate? And there's going to be some stench from our just household garbage. But does it accumulate and fester where evil is? We find it even today in our cities. Wherever there is wicked worship, there is sexual perversion. There is drugs. There is alcohol abuse, as there was even in the ancient world. There's every form of degraded act every kind of gathering together of what we would call dregs of humanity. And make sure you understand when I use a phrase like that. It is not a, a flippant brushing aside of people as if they are less valuable than we are. The human soul is of incredible and immense value, so valuable that the life of Jesus Christ is required in its place, and he was willing to give it. So I don't place any less value on human life But when we say dregs of humanity, it is by sinful choice that they involve themselves in degradation that corrupts and defiles and ruins and makes things worse and worse and will not listen to truth when it is available. And I suspect our passage alludes to both of those, both his insulting the idols as filth and from the actual accumulated garbage 
from idolatrous worship. And he says, let's cleanse it all. Get rid of it. Remove it from our lives, from the worship of Israel. Remove evil by identifying its destructiveness. The next few verses, note the length of the quote. We're going to see this even more in a chapter that's coming, in which an interaction between the Rabshakeh and Hezekiah is, is almost all quotation. It's quote, 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 quote for an entire chapter. And then the part that we would love to see in a movie is like one verse long. It's like, oh yeah, and God did this. Okay, so quotations matter. What did Hezekiah say in this quote? He outlines a lot of good theology, and he focuses attention on the consequences of sin. Note the specific sins that he lists. We have been unfaithful. We have done evil. We have forsaken God. We have turned away from true worship. We have shut the doors of the temple. It's all paganism. Evil has accumulated. And as a correspondence to that, what has God done? There's wrath, there is horror, there's astonishment, there is hissing, there is obvious shame, there is death in battle, there is captivity. It's so difficult to even to see this. In fact, a, a former student of mine that I had in class about uh, 15 years ago emailed me this week, and he just said, oh, I really need to check on with all the stuff that's going on in the world. Does God even deal with nations today? Or are we just kind of reading an Old Testamentish mentality into Scripture? You know, what, how, how are we even supposed to process this kind of thing that's going on in our world today? And he said, well, we only have evidence that God continues to deal with nations. That is, there's no place in Scripture where he repudiates that and says, oh, that's it, I'm done. Not dealing with nations anymore. It's all going to be individual from here on out. Rather, we have a pervasive. He deals with nations and national sins and even national righteousness in the Old Testament. And I said, so fast forward to the the farthest other end of the spectrum in human history, like the millennial kingdom. And we actually have an indication, according to Scripture, that the nations who properly worship in the millennial kingdom and bring up sacrifices to Christ in Jerusalem will experience prosperity and blessing that flows out from Him. But does anybody know what the Scriptures say about nations that refuse to worship in the millennium? He'll cut off rain. He'll cut off rain from an entire nation, let them go into drought. And you're like, but he, he, all this blessing all around us. Yeah, so worship the Lord. I said, so if he does it at these kind of almost opposite ends of spectrum of human history, there's no reason not to suppose he does it today. And God can make a nation into a wrath, a horror, an astonishment, a hissing, shameful, being attacked and predated by its enemies and even being led captive when he so desires. And it doesn't have to take the form of a, of a specific invasion for a people to be captive. Right now, in America, they estimate that there are more drug users and abusers than at any point in our history. People are dying of drug overdoses at an unprecedented rate within just the last several years. That is captivity. They're enslaved. Yes, enslaved to their own desires. They want it, and yet at the same time, it brings them into this horror and shame and degradation. Hezekiah links directly false worship, unfaithfulness to God, 
and all these consequences that bring a nation low. When a nation supports wickedness in its midst and its uh, political leaders refuse to do what is right, God wrecks and ruins that which is around them. So paganism. Everybody knows this picture, right? What is this? Stonehenge. And we think, wow, what an impressive thing. How far away did they get the stones? There are no stones like that in that area. How could they possibly move stones that were that massive? How could they set up the lentils on top? Awe and wonder. Okay, where are the Stonehenge people? They were pagans. They worshipped the sun and stars. Uh, Many people believe that even Stonehenge itself is set up to mirror the solstices, summer solstice and winter solstice. Where are they? They're gone. Absorbed entirely by other people, groups, and destroyed. And God does that with nations all around the world because of their evil. Hezekiah continues in verse 10, Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord. Ah, how much better is that than Hoshea's covenant? Hoshea's going to go covenant with a Syrian, a pagan. And if you take that yoke upon yourself, you have to carry it. Hezekiah walks up and says, It's in my heart to covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel in order that his fierce anger may turn away from us. My sons do not now be negligent. I love that. How how old is Hezekiah? 25. And he's gathering all the priests and the Levites and calling them my sons. Why? Because he's leading them in righteousness. He is the trailblazer. He is the authority. He's giving direction, but very tenderly and yet forcefully. This is where we're going. My sons, do not now be negligent, for the Lord has chosen you to stand in his presence, to minister to him and to be his ministers and make offerings to him. Then the Levites arose. I I love verses like verse 12 and 13. I know we're going to read through them really quickly and be on our merry way. But do you realize that God captures the names of individual people that we know nothing else about in all of history? And they would have been absorbed and covered in the sands of oblivion had God not put them right here in this chapter. And he puts them here. Why? Because they join in righteousness and cleansing their hands and hearts. The Levites arose, Mahath, the son of Amasai, Joel, the son of Azariah, of the sons of the Kohathites, and of the sons of Merari, Kish, the son of Abdi, and Azariah, the son of Jehalel, and of the Gershonites, Joah, the son of Zima, and Eden, the son of Joah, and of the sons of Elzaphan, Shimri, and Jehuel, of the sons of Asaph, Zechariah, and Madaniah, of the sons of Heman, Jehuel, and Shimei, of the sons of Jeduthun, Shimeiah, and Uziel. Wow, I wonder what they think now, having had that kind of faith in the Lord, having abandoned the immediately preceding tradition of worshiping demons and going after the Lord their God again. And now that they're in the Lord's presence, he's kind of like, oh yeah, you guys, you're in there permanently. My word, which is settled and guaranteed in heaven, but will endure forever, records that you were faithful. 
They gathered their brothers and consecrated themselves and went in as the king had commanded by the words of the Lord to cleanse the house of the Lord. The priests went in the inner part of the house to cleanse it. And they brought all the uncleanness that they found in the temple of the Lord into the court of the house of the Lord. And the Levites took it and carried it out to the brook of Kidron. And they began to concentrate it on the first day of the first month. And on the eighth day of the month, they came to the vestibule. It took them eight days to get into the temple at all because of the filth. Then for eight days they consecrated the house of the Lord. On the 16th day of the first month they finished. 16 days worth of cleansing. There's that much rubbish. And they finished. And they went into Hezekiah the king and said, We have cleansed all the house of the Lord, the altar of burnt offerings, its utensils, the table for the showbread, and its utensils. And all the utensils that King Ahaz discarded in his reign when he was faithless, we have made ready and consecrated. They are before the altar of the Lord. Hezekiah not only commits himself, but calls people to commit themselves to the Lord. And commitment requires someone to lead the way. Why not you? Why not you? Well, I'm too young. Hezekiah was 25, leading the nation. Well, I'm too old. Seriously? Age just means experience. Lead. Commitment requires someone to lead the way, to be public about purity and following the Lord. And commitment always calls other people to follow. Real commitment to the Lord is not silent. And that's where we can err in our generation if we say, well, I'm committed in heart. Yeah, well, who are you calling then to follow you? Jotham said he was committed in heart and he didn't change the national direction of Judah at all. As an extreme introvert, I was not a leader at all in high school. But I I was in the midst of a really tough class. We had a lot of substantial rebels. And in in between our junior and senior years, some some of those individuals went to camp, and first they went to camp, and then they stayed and worked at camp that were rebels, and they changed. They literally sat around as a group, about four of these guys, and said, you know what, we're done. We are absolutely done with all of this wickedness and this selfish pursuit. We are, not, we are on the brink of going into our senior year of high school. We're, we are not going to live life for ourselves anymore. And I mean, these were leaders. They were just leaders for bad. <laughs> they came back, and our senior year, the whole class dynamic was transformed. Because these guys were such leaders, basically, they still had rebels out there. And they're, they're basically, you either follow us or ship out. And some of them shipped out, (laughs) and a lot of them followed. And again, the dynamic of our entire class changed, so our senior year went entirely differently. Of that group, that small group that were strong leaders, one is an evangelist, one is a pastor, at least one is a missionary in a a closed or semi-closed country, and that's out of four. I can't remember where the fourth one is is doing and they led others, this other group, Christian ministry, Kish Christian ministry, Christian ministry. It was a, a lifelong, a permanent difference for the sake of the Lord. Well, uh, at about our 15th year anniversary or so, the evangelist was invited back, and he preached in Academy Chapel. I thought, well, that's cool. I, I went to see him. And afterward, he had happened to see me down there. So he comes running down. He's like, Brian, embracing me, and I'm thinking, wow, this is a change. <laughs> you know, I was trying to walk with the Lord and I was not cool and I was not trending, never was, too introverted. And here this man is embracing me. 
He's walking with the Lord. He said, I, he goes, I never told you this before. He goes, but you were instrumental in our choice to change. And I went, what? I'm, I'm nobody. I mean, I'm like, if, if there was nobody following somebody, I'm the somebody that nobody was following. Okay? Again, super introverted. And he said, no, you, you kept being persistent and doing what was right. And it was, a, it was a constant rebuke. It was very humbling because our lives are so simple that a lot of times we miss the good that we're even really doing. It seems so fruitless. You know, if you're not a leader type, you just, you're just doing right. You're just doing what you're supposed to be doing. And like it's, I, I suppose it does me good, but it doesn't do anybody else good. And then you find out decades later that it was an influence for good on this small group who then themselves, because they were extroverts and were wonderful guys, good, but powerful leaders, they led dozens and dozens of dozens of other people to follow the Lord. And a cascade of influence for God's sake just because we're committed to following him. Take somebody's hand and carry them forward. Commitment produces definitive action. It looks like it took a massive priest 16 days of hard work to cleanse the temple, but they were willing to do so. We have made ready and consecrated, and behold, they are before the altar of the Lord. In 2021, a woman was assaulted on a subway train in Philadelphia while onlookers recorded video with their cell phones. The guy uh, was abusing her for approximately 40 minutes before he finally raped her, and they just recorded it. Nobody called 911, even nobody intervened as she called for help. I'll remind you that according to the scriptures, those who refuse to eradicate evil within their sphere of influence are actually allies of the evil. People on that train were not benign and they were not neutral. They were on the side of the attackers. It was one attacker. They were actually his ally. They gave him the space, the room, the opportunity to carry out his evil with no interference, no one hindering. We cannot be that way. And a simple man, young man, coming to power at 25 years old is able to transform the national life and again stave off God's judgment for the entire nation once again because he walked with the Lord and he started with personal holiness that then he executed within his sphere of influence. Father, we're thankful for the testimony of your word again today. Through the wisdom of our Savior and his work in us, again, we pray for you to change our lives and our thinking. Let us not abide evil in our own hearts. May we be intolerant of that which is intolerable to you, and may we love all that which is lovely. Bless us this week as we seek your face, and we pray that through, again, the name and power of our Savior, you would work in us. It's for his sake that we pray. Amen.